Hi, I'm Jenny Wood, writer of Flutter and A Boy Like Me, and I'm listening to Adrian Has Issues because Adrian has issues and I do too. Hey everybody, Logan Adrian has issues. Today I am welcoming back a guest who's made his podcasting debut on this very show back in 2017, episode 98, entitled We Are Not Powerless, which was, um, coincidentally enough, about his book Powerless through Vault Comics. And he's also the writer of Alien Bounty Hunter, also through Vault. And we had such a great time talking about those two books and just getting to know David's background, going from an attorney who then has made your turn as a comic book writer. And we also got into a fun chat about some of our favorite toys from yesteryear. But he is back with a new title through IDW entitled Canto, which is this really great comic. And I'm going to try my best not to like go into too much detail and spoil this book for you, but it's really something special. And I, I really think that people are going to dig this. So please welcome back to the show, David Bohr. David, welcome back. Hey, Adrian. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be back. Thank you for considering me because we had such a great time last time. And when you hit me with this, I was like, okay, the fact that you wanted to come back at all, <laughs> you know, not to be so deprecating, but I'm always like, I really hope we, you know, it was okay because... You know, it was your first ever podcast, so it's like, that's a, that's a lot of weight, because it's like, I hope it's good, I hope, you know, he had a good time, and everybody else enjoyed it, which they did, and people still come back to me about that episode. Oh, that's awesome. Well, you know, I was totally terrified going in at my very <laughs> first podcast, with my very first comic out there, so, you know, you made me feel so at ease, and it was just, it's an amazing experience. So everybody who's listening, thanks for supporting Adrian. You're doing such a great thing, just bringing comics to as many people as possible, which is really all, you know, our goal is for all everybody who's creating them. Right. And I do definitely appreciate that. And Canto, like I said, this book is, um, wow. Um, <laughs> and I, I've noticed a, a really great thing about your work for someone who hasn't maybe been in the game as some, you know, your themes, I think are timely. Like they're, they're things that people can definitely relate to, but before we even get started though, I figured what we'll do is, um, kind of at least give the listener an overview before I continue gushing. Cause like I said, that first <laughs> issue, like I had actually wrote notes and had quotes of certain lines that I'm like. I need this tattooed on me. Oh my gosh, you're making me feel so good about it. Because you know, when you're writing these things, we're so insulated in our own little bubble, our own little world. It's really, really hard to take yourself out of that and figure out, is this any good? Am I doing this? You know, I know what I want to put down there, but how is how are other people going to look at it and, you know, interpret it? And I even have these moments as people are starting to read Canto and, you know, give feedback and get the reactions. I had this epiphany where I was thinking, you know what, it's going to be out there. And instead of me trying to control what I want people to take from this, I just have to embrace what people are going to, um, you know, how they're going to experience it. I just have to lean into that and not worry, oh, you know, I meant this, you know, I wanted this line to, to land this way and 
just you let it have its own life out there. And right. it's, it's something that I'm really trying to learn going along. So we'll see what happens. Right. And I definitely agree to that. And that's something, you know, even with the stuff that I do and talking to other creators, and this is something that's come up on a show a lot is the concept of getting out of the way of your story and just letting your story be what it's going to be. And like anything else, obviously you fine tune, you self edit, so to speak. But as far as the core mission of not only your story, but your characters, like you said, just letting it be what it is. Cause in a lot of ways, being a creator, I feel like you want to control everything. Like it's, <laughs> you know, like I don't want to use oh, the term, I, know. <laughs> I don't want to use the term control freak, but you know, it's like you really want to make sure that you're hitting all the right points. But as I'm reading this story, like I feel like that's kind of what you did was even like as I'm just going along, like I was just a part of the journey and it just goes. There's your basic setup, but instead of trying to show everything up front, like you're pretty much going along the journey with Kanto. And I think that's what makes this work. We can talk about sort of what the premise is and that sort of thing. But we made a specific choice with this story to have a protagonist, um, a main character in Kanto, who really knows nothing about the greater world. And so when we were building this big, fantastical world he gets to go into, he's experiencing it the first time, just like the readers are going to experience it for the first time. So instead of like front-loading all of this information about what his world is, we start peeling back layers as he goes along in his journey. And I think that's a really easy and fun way for readers to stay engaged without being just completely inundated with information. You know, introducing a new character in a new world and a new story, it's very hard. So spoonfuls, you know, <laughs> tiny spoonfuls is the way we sort of approached it. Right. And something I'm always interested in is not even just the how, but also the why of creating. You're no stranger to sci-fi and fantasy, clearly, with the other comics you've worked on. But what was it about Kanto, and what was it that kind of drove you to write this particular story? You know, like I said, coming from Powerless to Alien Bounty Hunter, you know, these very, like, intense, like, sci-fi stories to then bring it to something a little bit more fantastical something a little bit more i guess all ages so to speak uh, drew and i um drew zucker is the artist on this and he is just absolutely phenomenal and he's been that way from the very first day we um started talking about this so he came to me with a sort of rough concept drawing of can't of this little tin man and within seconds of me looking at this i said oh we're definitely doing a story about this little guy he had some ideas about what a story would be. It was sort of inspired by Dante's Inferno. But what I told him, I said, there's so many dystopian sci-fi stories out there. And this was the fall of, I want to say, 2017. So, <clears throat> you know, the things um, that were happening in the world at the time, I said, I want to make a story that's about hope. We have a main character who has hope in the face of overwhelming odds in a world where there seems to be none. And so we started talking about it and we came up with this idea of Kanto where I'll sort of pitch the idea now. So Kanto is a little tin man who lives in this world and his little tin people are slaves in this fantastical world. And um, they're not allowed to have names, they're not allowed to have stories, they're not allowed to care for one another. 
And when they're taken, they have hearts, but these slavers take out their hearts and put in clocks. So whenever their time is up or their clocks get damaged, they go into the furnaces. Well, Canto, he has a name and he has um, a relationship with this little tin girl. And her clock gets damaged and he decides the only way to save her is to go out into his fantastical world, find where the slavers have taken their hearts and bring hers back to save her. I wanted a story where he went on this fantastical adventure, but he didn't do it for himself. He did it for somebody else. And I think that's the ultimate act of hope and courage is to go risk yourself to save not yourself, but some, you know, somebody else. And that's how it sort of came about. And from there, we got to put in all of the best fantasy elements and that we loved. And I kept giving Drew new and bigger and crazier ideas, inspired by Dante's Inferno and Wizard of Oz. And it sort of has come to this beautiful story. And I, I can't wait for everybody to see where it goes over these six issues, because there's constant surprises. And even by the time he gets to <clears throat> the end of his uh, adventure, there's still going to be surprises and it's still going to be about hope and it's still going to be about this adventure. Right. And I want to do my best to, again, not spoil anything. And if for any reason that I go too far, feel free to stop me. But there were certain things that I did pick up on that I thought were really poignant. Okay. Like even the concept of replacing, you know, the characters' hearts with clocks, like there's so much imagery that you could pull from that. You know, it's like I think about like our almost every day where that daily grind, you know, we kind of just exist. We get up, we go to work. You know, if we do have some time for leisure activities, we do those. But it's very routine. And what is also routine? A clock. Right. <laughs> they know they have this clock in their chest. And when it stops, that's it. Their time is up. Like human beings, if we have a heart, you sort of... You make the most of it because you're never quite sure when your time is up, you know? Right. And if you know the end is nigh, I mean, I don't want to get dark with it because it's not dark. But if you know you know, you have a limited period of time, you give up sort of hoping for something better. I don't want to go any, any farther than that because as the story unfolds, you start to understand what is happening and why this is happening. But that's the idea that, um, you know, with clocks, they're just going to sort of do what they're there to do. And then when their time is up, that's it. Right. And what was so endearing about Kanto is as this quest begins, he starts out, I think, in some ways, like sometimes people do when they do set out into the world and to kind of make their mark in it. You know, you kind of come with a little bit of preconceived notions about how things work based on, well, what you've already experienced and also sometimes what you're told. And it was kind of remarkable in like how Kanto comes to these conclusions on his own. And again, like I thought that was really interesting how you approach those story elements. And you're seeing things, like you said, just as he is. And you're like, oh, okay. So as I'm starting it, what often happens, and it's bad, and I do apologize, because <laughs> it happens in every story I read. There's a part of me that always tries to try to figure out like a couple of steps ahead of, oh, well, I think I know where this story is going to go. But to then have that constantly flipped on you, I think is really cool, because then that means that A, it's working, and B, it's like, well, see, now me and the main character have something in common. Oh, yeah, you don't know what's coming. When I was writing the story, I definitely set out to, um, every time I felt like I was getting up to the line of um, something that was expected, 
so I do this in my writing too, just generally, because I'm also, I also do screenwriting, a lot of screenwriting. And I always do this exercise where if I'm writing a scene and I think, you know, I, I figure out what might happen, right? I flip it on its head and I say, well, what if the complete opposite happens? What if instead of A, we did Z? And almost always the Z option is the non-cliche sort of unexpected option. And that's almost always what I lean into. So when I was writing the story for Canto, every time I felt like I was coming up to uh, an expected sort of trope from fantasy, I would flip it on its head. And I would say, well, what happens if we did this, which I've never really seen before? And that always worked way better than leaning into what, um, you know, sort of the familiar, I guess. The Malarex. I thought that was a really nice touch. How you approach that? <laughs> I'm glad you said that. So for the listeners, I don't want to spoil too much, but I do want to entice everybody. So Canto encounters... There's they, they talk about these creatures called the Malarex, and they say, don't go out at night because the Malarex are out there. And one of them shows up. They're like bears crossed with gorillas. And Kanto uh, encounters one, and it goes a little bit differently than how you might expect. We'll just put it that way. Right. With this story... In like any comic, one of the key things is, of course, your creative team. I know you mentioned Drew earlier, but I don't know if you wanted to talk about assembling this crew and, you know, what everybody's been able to bring to the table. Um, the colors alone, I mean, my gosh, are breathtaking. Isn't Vittorio just a complete rock star? So the colorist with us on the team is uh, Vittorio Estone. I think Drew, uh, artist Drew Zucker, he knew him, but Vittorio is currently coloring the Vault comic series, These Savage Shores, and his work is just constantly breathtaking. And as soon as we saw his first take on some of the pages, we knew absolutely 1000% that he was the person for it. And my good buddy, Darren Bennett, who has lettered every single comic that I've ever published, we gave him a page in issue two that I thought was completely impossible for a letter letterer. I thought he was going to come back and say, we need to re redo this lettering. We need to figure out something because it's going to be impossible. It was a full page spread. So a single panel on a page and it was a conversation. And the way that Drew had set it up was amazing. And I thought, well, this is going to be a challenge. And Darren was a rock star. So Darren's gone back to powerless with me. And honestly, I um, would love to work with other letterers, but he's, he's amazing and he's uh, dependable. So I would recommend everybody else work with him as well. Drew brought in Vittorio. So I'd love to talk a little bit about how we actually got Canto set up at IDW. Yeah, absolutely. Great. So Drew approached me with the concept for the character and we started developing it together. We put the team together and then in about the spring of last year, so around this time last year, we had put together a pitch document, which for anybody who's an aspiring creator out there or a current creator, I will never pitch a series without this kind of document um, again, <laughs> because editors see so many, and I'm, and I'm serving as an editor on another series, and editors see so many pitches 
that run the spectrum from just written on, you know, a Word document all the way through these polished pitches. But the polished ones are really the ones that rise to the top. So what I set out specifically to do with the team was to create this pitch document that the only reason an editor would say no to it is because it doesn't fit in their catalog and because, or because they have something else that's similar and has nothing to do with the creative on it. So it was a mock cover designed for it. And then it described the series in this cool, like parchment style paper. So it felt like a book of fables or fairy tales. Oh, wow. That's like a really nice touch. Yeah. And that was uh, Darren and his team actually were the uh, layout designers for that. And so it's it had, it had a little bit of you know some some ink drawing so just uh, black and white sort of outline illustration type visuals from Drew right and then we had some, a little bit of concept art and then we put in fully uh, finished pages and the response that we got from this pitch I was sort of blown away because um, you know it wasn't like a lot of people came in and said yes right away it was just that every time I showed it to anybody there was a visible reaction wow this right. is really cool. And that's all I wanted with the pitch was for people to react positively to it. So we put the team together and I had um, a good friend of mine, Ben Bishop, who is an amazing artist and writer of comics. He referred us over to uh, somebody who knew at IDW and we put it through the process at IDW. And frankly, Jaws were on the floor when they came back and said they liked it and they wanted to uh, pursue it with us. That's a really cool story to kind of give them something up front that they can actually see and sort of make a connection with. That's actually a really cool idea. And I think not only is, does you know, the visuals and the, the story and everything has to be firing on all cylinders, but I think what a polished pitch like that also, the message that it also sends to um, an editor is this team is professional. They can come together if they can create this document, then it should inspire confidence that the whole team can also meet deadlines and produce the work that's needed. And that's just as important as having the substance and the art and the story all down is to also be dependable in this business because it's all about deadlines. And if you blow deadlines, you, you start getting a reputation about blowing deadlines. So I think sending that message to editors is just as important as getting the story right and the art right and the whole package. I hope I didn't spoil anything because like in my notes, there were a couple of quotes that I had where I'm like, this is it. Like, this is such a- Go for a, it. Okay. Go for it. So this first one that came to me, like this really like hit me was, we did not come into this world with clocks on our chest. We came with hearts. It's a very simple line because, you know, it pretty much sets up the story and how this journey starts. But then I started taking personally and like I said, that really struck a chord because something I've really been thinking about is, you know, just personally speaking. I don't know if you have this issue either. This idea that sometimes with life and especially your nine to five, your day to day, sometimes doing things in a creative sense, an artistic sense this sort of push and pull I have where it almost feels like you had to give yourself permission to do this thing. Yeah. I think life sort of becomes mechanical and wrote. I hate to even admit this on the show, but I um, just turned 40 recently and you have these thoughts about, you know, what do I want to spend my time doing, which you don't have. I don't think in your twenties and thirties, I never had, I personally never had a moment where I thought, Oh geez, I only have, you know, 
what, 60, 65 years, uh, all things, you know, going well, right. 65 years left. What am I going to do with the next 65 years of my life? But then you start getting older and you're like, well, what am I doing? What I want to be doing? Am I following my heart or am I just going through the motions? And I think maybe, I don't know if that's exactly where you're going with it. That's exactly where I'm going with it. And because it's, it's, it's a hard thing to admit. And But by the same token, that line sort of reinforces the idea that I've been trying to, you know, constantly repeat in myself is not everybody does comics, not everybody does podcasting or is necessarily working in the fields that we do. But I feel like with that line, you know, kind of re reinforcing the idea that we're more than just, you know, our, yeah, exactly. Like our day to day that these parts of ourselves that we sometimes think are extra pieces that don't really fit anywhere, like they work together. And when you remove it, you sort of become less than what you were. Yeah. And I thought the story was very inspirational in that, you know, and maybe that's not necessarily the overall mission that Canto's trying to put on, but I started seeing the slavers as times in which maybe I was held back. You know, those times where people would say, well, why are you doing this? And why aren't you doing this instead? And, you know, it's like, really podcasting? Like, that's your thing? I was like, I don't know. It's like, this is something I love to do. And then, like, I got fired up and I'm like, <laughs> you know, it's like, all right, Kendo, let's do this. Let's go, let's go on this journey together. Oh, my God. That's amazing. I think you got it. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm trying so hard not to spoil it, but I really feel like that's what I was able to gather from it. I mean, at the end of the issue one, and you, I, I sent it to you, and it's very visual, so it doesn't spoil anything. But as we exit issue one, there's this sort of very cinematic moment that Drew and Vittorio and Darren have, have created on the page. My only hope by the end of the issue is that you just feel compelled to follow Canto and find out. Does he find their hearts? He's got so much hope that this journey is going to save this person that he loves. I just want the readers to feel like, not even I want to go on, but I, I'm compelled to go on to find out if Kanto achieves his goal right. and how he does that. But I think it's important because what would have happened if Kanto decided, well, this isn't worth it? You could have easily just shrugged. I'm like, well, that's unfortunate, but that's just the way it is. That's the whole point of it is these little tin slaves have been doing this for so long that there is a moment in issue four, I want to say, there is a line. He encounters somebody, I'm not going to spoil who, but he encounters a new character and the new character exactly hits the point that you're saying, which is you do this for long enough and you sort of forget why you're doing it. Even if you never knew why you're doing it, you don't ask questions anymore. You just keep doing it. And Kanto's the one who has decided he's not going to accept that. And he's going to go and he's going to, even if it's just one tin person that he, sla that he saves, he's going to go and he's going to risk himself to do that. You know, we we're talking about the fact that it's been, what, two years since we last spoke. I mean, right. you've gone on a bit of a journey yourself. Like I said, from when we first spoke, you know, you were just coming out with your very first comic for what was a relatively new company. So I don't know if you want to get into a little bit of your journey as a creator and as a writer, and maybe in ways in which you found yourself improving as you've gone on, because you clearly have. And that's coming from like a pretty strong debut. So what's your experience been like? So it takes, I'll put it this way, it takes a lot of a very long time and a lot of energy to put together 
a creator-owned comic book. And anybody who has done it knows that. And, um, you know, going to these comic shops and looking at just the massive number of creator-owned books that are out there, it's just constantly astonishing to me how creators can put together a book and put it out and then put together another book and put it out. It's been so much work. And so for the last, all of 2018, basically, um, I've been putting together different pitches, including Canto. But in the meantime, I've been reading a ton of creator-owned comic books and seeing what other people are doing and understanding how they've done it and sort of dissecting some of these different series and, and seeing what's been successful and what's been less successful and meeting people, talking to them, figuring out the right way to approach this. So when I first did Powerless back in 2017, I was sort of flying by the seat of my pants. Um, I had a phenomenal editor and Adrian Wassel and um, a phenomenal publisher and Damien, his brother, and they really taught me so much about writing comic books and creating comic books. But then getting out there and having a book out there and then doing it again from scratch now with so much more information than I had before, it really was a fun experience. And I could see it unfolding in front of me much more easily than I did before. You know, and it's learning from mistakes and taking ownership of the creative process and really leaning into believing what I wanted to do was um, the right way to do it and having very specific ideas and standing by those and, you know, you know, giving up ground when I know that the, that like Drew has his perspective is the right one or Vittorio's is the right one or Darren's the right one. Navigating that has really helped me immensely. And I think that's why we got to go with IDW, which is a huge deal for us. We were so excited because it really felt like they had seen the hard work that we had put into it and to have them supporting the book has been amazing. Well, yeah, I mean, you did what is the core of comics creating is, I mean, yes, you could do it by yourself. You know, there's no rule that says you can't, but to have a team and to have the team trust each other and to work together for a common goal. Having a vision that everybody buys into right. and everybody and everybody fits into for a particular book was so invaluable in the whole process. I couldn't, I can't imagine Canto without Drew and Vittorio and Darren on it. I just can't. Even the same story would, would look different. It would feel different. It would be different. And so um, I honestly, I would said that on, I don't know, I think I might've said it on Twitter recently, but um, I, going forward, putting comic books together and creator on series, I'll always put the team together because that's when I know that the vision that we all have is going to be realized. I mentioned at the top of the show, you know, we had a, a fun exchange talking about some of the toys and, you know, some of the stuff that like in our childhoods that we really enjoyed. And I feel like, by the way, I said something about the Boba Fett action figure that was totally wrong. Oh, was it really? <laughs> yes. So I, there was this rocket firing Boba Fett that's worth like tens of thousands of dollars now. And I said that they had changed the rocket to glue it in because a kid had choked on that rocket. And I actually think it was a Battlestar Galactica figure that <laughs> happened to. Oh, I, oh, that was the part I thought was wrong. I was hoping it was like, oh, maybe, um, hopefully the person who, you know, was, was hurt. Oh, I know they're alive and well. Um, <laughs> oh, that's so, that's so dark. I'm sorry. No, um, it's okay. No, it was, it was, um, the, I think it was a Battlestar Galactica figure that it happened to, and that prompted them to change the Boba Fett's rocket firing mechanism to basically glue it in. 
man, really? Battlestar Galactica? I was like, oh, that's that's a shame. <laughs> it's so funny. We're like, oh, Star Wars, kill the kids. But Battlestar Galactica, don't touch that. Yeah, like that's really that. I never would have guessed. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Well, that's... I'm going to come on in two years from now, and I'm going to have to correct that story, too. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's better. <laughs> Now knowing that and knowing your background and that childlike enthusiasm really comes in through this book. It's inspired by, or we definitely drew directly on not only Wizard of Oz and Dante's Inferno, but um, like Never Ending Story and Labyrinth and Dark Dark Crystal especially. You go back to these 80s fantasy movies. Those Skeksis are terrifying. They're all terrifying. (laughs) They're all terrifying. And we didn't set out to make a scary book in any way, but... You know, sometimes Drew and I would have this conversation. I'd say, Drew, the Malorex is pretty scary for like an eight-year-old kid. And he would say, oh, my God, but that's that's why they're going to love it. Because everything that was super scary in those movies when we were growing up, we loved that stuff. That's why we watched them. So we leaned into it. And I think we all believe that it's going to be a great all-ages, very appealing book to, um, you know, not super, super young kids, but you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-olds, it's a story that I think they can relate to. And there might be a few scary images in there, but I think that's what's going to, you know, get their get their heart rate up a little bit and get them excited about it. Those 80s fantasy movies, and keep in mind, those were pretty much for everybody. Like, I remember being scared out of my wits during, like, Willow or even, like, Neverending Story. You know, even the parts that weren't even meant to be terrifying. But, I mean, come on. When Artex, Artex dies in that swamp, come on. That moment, like, ripped every child's heart out who was watching it. And so... If they can kill Artax in the Swamps of Sadness, then we can make Kanto. Right? And, and they were, it wasn't even just like, oh, the, the horse sank and like they cut away to a reaction shot of the kid just being sad. They leaned on it. We watched that every step of the way and they didn't shy away from it. And I don't know if it's a good or bad thing. I'm still kind of thinking about it. But it's like they really did just drive that point home. Yeah. And everybody remembers it. Everybody remembers that moment from that movie, and it makes me sort of emotional to even think about it. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was, like, right up there between that, you know, a good chunk of the Dark Crystal, that scene in Willow where, like, Val Kilmer turns into, like, the board. It's like, there's just these moments in these stories where it's like, this was, like, kids can watch this stuff, but, like, my God. <laughs> I know, and it, and it's, and I feel like if we, with this book, shied away from that if we became nervous and self-conscious about that i think it would come through in the book and we didn't we weren't self-conscious about it we said we're going to design these creatures and these characters and everybody the way we would want to see them and the way we know we would have wanted to see them when we were 10 years old or 11 years old so we leaned into that and you know, honestly, parents getting it for their kids. We've had feedback from friends of ours who have kids and, you know, very early on have showed them the images and read them the book and, you know, they loved it. So if parents have any nervousness about them, they can flip through it and that sort of thing. But I think we're really hitting all the right notes for what we want everyone to take out of it. Something that you said that I think is very important is not shying away from it and not from a, oh, we're just going to warp some kids' sensibilities, but sometimes you have to at least show just a little bit of that just to kind of make people realize like, yes, there is, you know, some scary parts of the world, but that's not necessarily what it's all about. You know what I mean? 
I have described it as sort of he lives in this darker world under sort of dark circumstances, but Canto is this shining beacon of hope I would like people to to see. And setting a character in this darker world, but who's who's sort of the light in it, I think makes the world easier to enter and easier to experience for the reader. Because Canto's not beat down by this world. He doesn't think his circumstance is not changeable at all. That's why he's going on this adventure. So making him the light in sort of a darker world is, um, I think, I think balances everything out so that you can really feel like you're connected to him, even as he's sort of going on this little bit scarier moments in this journey. Right. And that's what I always loved about like the Lord of Rings, especially from the perspective of the Hobbits, where there might have been like a little bit of naivete involved in their adventure, but they weren't so corrupted by the malcontent and sometimes the cynicism that the characters they ran into. And I think it's because of that, that in a way, you know, it sort of changed them. Like I was thinking about Merry and Pippin dealing with the Ents. The Ents were basically like, we're content in just being in this place. We're not really going to bother anybody. You know, we're not going to necessarily fight this war, but then dealing with the Hobbits and realizing, well, shoot, like this is our world too. And we have to kind of take part in it. And I, I always loved that because to me, that's really what it's all about. And putting some of that hope out there and hopefully getting some of that hope back. Because, you know, if it's just cynicism, meeting cynicism, nothing changes, nothing gets done. Yeah. And and I'm glad you said mentioned Lord of the Rings, because there's the moment in the fellowship when um, Frodo steps, they're arguing at the council at Rivendell and Frodo steps forward and he says, I will take it, though I do not know the way. That's the quintessential Hobbit moment where he doesn't understand the danger that Leia had, even though he's, I think he sort of understands it will be dangerous. He doesn't know how dangerous it will be, but yet he has the hope that he can do this no matter what. And I think it's because he's a hobbit and hobbits just do it. They don't worry that it's going to be dangerous or scary or um, that they may may not succeed. He's just going to go and he's going to take it. And I think that's sort of that moment, Lord of the Rings, we've channeled into Canto when he steps out and he says, I'm going to do this. I know the world is dangerous out there, but I'm going to go and I'm going to go out and find where they take our hearts. I really can't wait to read the rest of the story. I know you mentioned this uh, before we even got started, though, but um, how long is the pre-order cycle going through? It is on pre-order right now. Well, as we record this and the uh, pre-order period is over in June I think the final order cutoff is June 12th. So anytime up to June 12th, any of your listeners can go to your comic shop and ask for Canto from IDW. Or there's a couple places online that they offer, like Midtown Comics online. You can um, subscribe to the series that way. I think there's a discount there right now. And it's super, super helpful to pre-order because it helps us keep it going and helps us keep the series going. So anybody who goes and does it, thank you, thank you, thank you from the whole team. Thank you for sharing not only the story Canto, but also your story. And I think that's sort of the beauty of being able to do this is, you know, seeing you from where you were two years ago to now and seeing that progression and just kind of really see you coming to your own. And I I think it's really cool and it's also just really inspiring so again thank you for sharing that and of course best of luck with this book and and all your other future endeavors thanks um yeah i'm putting together a can i mention 
one other yeah series. Walk away. This is this is your platform, good sir. <laughs> <laughs> so there's one other series that um, I'm putting together a pitch for. It's very different from Canto, but it's something that's very near and dear to me. It's a fun galactic crazy romp uh, sci-fi book called Killer Queens. And I call it Guardians of the Galaxy because it's <laughs> it's a um, I know so it's a, two reformed uh, intergalactic assassins one one's a gay guy one's a gay girl and they go on this big like Thor Ragnarok like uh, Guardians of the Galaxy fun adventure type thing and it's an LGBTQ book that I really have always wanted to do just a full queer comic series. And we have um, put together an all LGBTQ creative tr- team right down to the letterer to pitch this. And so I am really, really excited. We're, we're just sort of in the stages of getting art together now, and we're going to take it out. So I don't have any um, specific announcements, but I'm so excited to have this series that we can just lean into um, the queer angle to it and just really make that a... Um, really a centerpiece of this fun sci-fi series that I'm just excited about it. So that's going to come down the line. We'll see what happens with it. Very cool. And hopefully uh, we'll get to hear more about that soon. And uh, thank you. But before you go, as always, let everybody know where they can find out more about you or any other sites you want to throw out there real quick. Anybody can find me on Twitter at David Boer, just my name. Uh, Instagram is David M. Boer. Uh, I have a website, David uh, davidboer.com, uh, and that's the best way to get a hold of me. I, I um, would uh, love if you went over to Twitter and followed me there or on Instagram. We'll be uh, posting a lot more about Canto and you know some other fun stuff. Very cool. And again, thank you so much. And for everybody, like I was saying, support your independent creators, pre-order your books, because that's a, a great signal to let people know that not only do these books deserve to be out there, but also that people are looking to read them. So definitely check this out. And that'll do it for this episode of Adrian Has Issues, and we will see you next issue. 